Take your Bible, if you would, and join me in Romans chapter number 12. Romans chapter number 12. I don't know if you've ever used the expression before, or maybe the expression has been used of you, but there are times when people say this expression. They will say the words, who do you think you are? I don't know if you've ever used those words yourself to someone else. Maybe it was someone who uh, was a new employee and they came in acting as if they were the employer rather than the employee. And whether you said it to them directly or you just said it under your breath, who do you think you are? Maybe it's a person who came into an athletic team and they thought they were the team. And you said to them, or you said about them, who in the world do they think they are? The title of our message today is simply that, who do you think you are? It's an important question, and it has, I would suspect, an even more important answer. Your Bibles are open to Romans chapter 12. If you would, begin with me looking at verse number 3, and I'll read down through verse number 5. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse number 3. For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. So before we jump into this passage, let's ask for God's blessing on that which we're about to see. Father, we do recognize that apart from you, we are nothing but a lot of noise, some some clanging cymbals. So we're asking that you would empower this truth, the words that will be spoken regarding it, in ways that can accomplish what only you can do. So we look to you today. We have needs and you have supply. We have questions and you have answers. May we leave this time around your word having been helped by the same. And this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our head. Amen. You know, we're going to jump into this passage, but look again, if you will, at the first few words that are mentioned in our text today. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you. Paul's writing this letter to the church at Rome, and therefore this is not a general appeal to all of mankind. Paul is talking to the church at Rome, and by extension, the Apostle Paul is talking to us today. Not the church at Rome, but the the church in Pensacola, the the church called Campus Church. I'm, I'm writing the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit is saying, I'm talking to you. I mean, how many times have we sat in a service before and we said, that would be good for somebody? There is a need, and and if they heard that message, but the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm writing to everyone that is among you. He's saying, in essence, sit up and pay attention 
This is something that you need to hear. And I can deduce for my own self, Jeff, this is something you need to hear. And if the person sitting in your seat today would say, this is something that I need to hear, we have come away with the intent of to every man that is among you. Who do you think you are depends basically on two things. First of all, our way of thinking, and that is our way of thinking about ourselves and our way of seeing. That is seeing ourselves in the context that fits within the larger body of Christ. So to help us with this, the Apostle Paul is going to give us two things. He's going to give us an exhortation. He's going to say, hey, listen, I'm exhorting you to do this. And then he's going to help us as, as good preaching does, and he is a master. He's going to give us an illustration. He's going to say, all right, now this is what this looks like. So let's begin today with where he does, and that is an exhortation, and that is regarding a way of thinking. This exhortation, he's going to cheer us on to something, and the exhortation has specifically to do with how it is that we are thinking, more specifically how it is that we're thinking about ourselves in context of us within the larger body. Look again at the passage, just verse number three, and think about his exhortation. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. So Paul's using a word, and he uses it repeatedly in this verse. In fact, if you broke the the Greek down, you'd find that it's actually used or a derivative of it four different times in this one verse. To think, to think, to think. The Greek word's phroneo. And he's saying, all right, now you're going to have to be thinking and you're going to have to do it a certain way. And so he keeps strumming this chord over and over to think, to think, to think. He's exhorting us regarding our thinking connected to ourselves. So the first thing that he does, he's going to do it basically in two ways. He's going to give a negative and a positive. So let's look at the negative implication that he gives. And again, that is not to think of himself more highly. Now, he's not saying don't ever think about yourself. Sometimes I think we cut that passage short and we say, hey, just stop thinking about yourself. And that's not what he's saying. He is saying there are going to be some thoughts that you need to think about yourself but to not think more highly of himself than he ought to think. More highly. It's not just the word phreneo. This word now, and we would even get it. Okay, if phreneo means to think, the Greek word that's used here is hyperphreneo. Hyperphreneo. He says, all right, now stop thinking about yourself in a manner that exceeds appropriateness. You've gone beyond what a person should be thinking about themselves, and you've made this a hyper thought, an unrealistic thought, a thought that has gone to extremes, a thought that is actually not based in reality. Let me say that again. What you're doing then, he's saying, is you're now applying thoughts to yourself that are no longer reality-based thoughts. You're living in a land of make-believe and it's not helpful. How many of you have ever used the famous last words, hey, watch this? You ever said that before? So, hey, watch this. And I mean, I'm sure there are, 
you can search the internet and I'm sure you'd find some great um, illustrations of, hey, watch this. I, I don't have a recording of this, but I do have a, a mental recording that is fixed in my mind. I was on a tramp. No, 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 I wasn't on a trampoline. I'm watching teenagers on a trampoline. And they're bouncing, they're doing flips and all kinds of cool tricks. And, and it's my turn on the tramp. And so I use those famous last words, hey, watch this. Okay. And so I'm, you know, getting some height and I'm jumping. And, and I did a backflip, very impressive. And, um, you know, I'd said, hey, watch this. So I do a backflip. And when I hit, I, ba- I, wasn't, I wasn't balanced. And so I bounced again really good bounce, which took me to the very edge of the trampoline. So I landed on the second bounce on that, that metal pipe right between the, the springs. and the, So I landed on that, and I landed more off it than I did on. And so now my body is quickly going off the trampoline. I'm holding on for dear life, but I couldn't. So I, I do the flip, bounce, hit the side, trying to hold on, don't hold on, fall to the ground. Fortunately, there was something underneath me to break my fall. Do you know those little kiddie pools? Okay. <laughs> There's a little kiddie pool filled with water right underneath me that the family's dog used to keep cool in the summer. <laughs> hey, watch this! And they did, okay. Do you know, oftentimes we use those words only to our own demise. Now, what should we note about this passage? Paul is not saying don't have any opinion about yourself. What he's saying is have an accurate opinion, knowing who we are and who we are not. So so in a sense, we could say, well, who are we not? Well, first of all, we're not God. And let me repeat that. We are not God Whose problem was this early on? We have one whose name is Lucifer. Lucifer says, I will exalt my throne above. Okay, what he's saying is, I want to be God. Well, he's not God. Who else is is deluded, seduced by this really appealing thought of me being the center of all things? Well, Adam and Eve. Listen, you you need to be like God because then you're going to have so many things that you don't have right now. Who are we not? We are not God. It remains our problem even to this day, not just a problem of Lucifer or of Adam and Eve. We begin to move out of the place that God has created for us to reside. We want His place, not our own. Who are we not? Well, we're not God. Now, again, he's telling us, think accurately about yourself. Who else are we not? Well, we're not God. You know, we're not the same as an animal or a tree or a bird or a mountain. All of these things have their place. All of these things are created by God, but that's not you. And you know, when mankind begins to place himself in the same circle, so to speak, as these other created things, we've also begun this trail of wrong thinking. Well, who are we not? We're not God, and we're not the same as the other aspects of creation. So then, well, who am I? Who are we? Who has God created us to be? Well, one of the most important things we could answer regarding this is we are image bearers. 
We are image bearers. We are made in the likeness of our creator, God. He created us in his image. Therefore, we are moral. We know the difference between right and wrong. And as image bearers, we are created with purpose. This means that we have a job to do, a role to fulfill, a work to do that reflects the one who made us in ways that no other aspect of creation can accomplish. So if we begin to say or to believe this old line, I'm not good at anything dialogue, we're really making a statement about the one who created us. Well, I'm just not good at anything, or I'm not as good as so-and-so, or I can never do that, or I wish I could. Do you know, really what we're doing is we're making a statement about our creator that he messed up. Instead, we look at ourselves as created in his likeness, in his image, with a purpose to rightly reflect him. None of us are created to do everything. All of us are created uniquely to fill a place in the body. This last Thursday evening, I was in one of the Pensacola Christian College residence halls and was invited to participate in one of the the evening prayer groups. And so while I'm there, I was there a little bit early, and there are two young men that are seated at a table. They have their tablets out and their, their pens, and they're writing on their tablet, and they are writing equations that I have absolutely no idea what they're putting on that paper. And so I went over and I I was interested. I'm not just feigning interest, I'm interested. I'm looking at what it is that they're doing. And I said, what are you guys working on? And they're saying, "Um, you know, project for our engineering class. And the equations and such that they are writing, I am literally, I mean, they're trying to explain it. And then they're talking about a question. One of them slides his tablet over to the other and says, hey, um, um, what is is this equation doing? And I'm looking at it and it, it could have been Martian for all I know. I have no idea whatsoever. I am totally lost. But thankfully, God didn't build me for that. It's not the thing that my mind processes. I I, I don't retain that kind of information. But for them, they're looking at that and it makes sense. and, And they can write out and work on and understand and then use this in real world applications. Why? Because God created them with a mind to do so. I could be frustrated with the fact that, that I can't do that, but then that was probably for me a matter of pride, not an honest matter of frustration, thinking I should be able to do everything or anything that I want to do. The point that is being made here is know what God has made you for. Accept that and don't overestimate any of what he has blessed you with. This is the negative. Okay, I'm not built to do everything. I am built to do some things. What's the positive? He goes on in this passage of Scripture, notice what he says next. But to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Again, we see another form of our word phreneo. And now we have so phreneo. This is the idea of a sound mind, to be sane in your thinking, to be sober. Do you know what, what happens when I don't have this sound thinking? so freneto, sober thinking. Well, I think that the idea that's being presented here is if I'm not sober in my thinking, I am becoming intoxicated with myself. Forgive the language, but drunk on myself. 
Now, I am so intoxicated, so consumed with myself that I am a, a staggering, so to speak, fool because I am deluded into believing things that do not correspond with reality. You may ask, how do I think soberly? Well, that process has already begun. If we've, if we've already been thinking through Romans chapter 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. God, I'm wholly yours, not conformed to this world, but transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. Now, there is something that is bigger than me. I'm not the end all. I'm not the center of the universe. Now, I am informed, instructed. I am taught. I am led. I am brought along by the teaching and truths of the Word of God. You say, well, well how can I not be deluded and deceived about myself? I get myself into the truths, the teachings of the Word of God. And, you know, isn't it wonderful that, that God has this gracious way of continually reminding us of our need for Him, of for our need for sound thinking? He has ways. How many of you have ever seen, I don't know, maybe a, how many of you have ever used the words, if that, if that kid were my child, okay, um, how many of you have ever, don't raise your hand, okay, but how many of you have ever used those words before you were a parent? Okay, there's a lot of college students in here. Have you ever been at Walmart and you see, you know, like a kid just going wild wherever, and you just kind of walk away saying, you might not say it out loud, but you're in your mind, you're saying, if that were my child, I'll tell you what would be happening, all right? Well, you know, you better be careful because someday that might be your child. <laughs> there is something about life that happens to us that makes it much more personal, much more real, and provides for us an opportunity for what we would refer to as sober thinking. It removes us from an intoxication with self. Like, I t I'll tell you what I would do in that situation. Well, if that were my decision, isn't it easy to do with a boss or with a place or sometimes with a church? I'll tell you what I would do if that were my decision. And many times God actually allows us through the course of time, through just the unraveling of events, sometimes God allows that to be our decision. And we find like, wow, that was not quite as easy as I suspected when I said, I'll tell you what I would do if that were me. On a recent um, mission trip that we took to Honduras, um, we had a wonderful evening meal with children in what's called the, the Hope Children's Home. Just a wonderful time with the kids. And after the meal, we're just having fun playing. So we're just goofing around playing with the kids. And they brought out hula hoops. Well, have you ever just said, that looks easy? Okay. That looks easy. Now, I'm not going to tell a story about myself, but I will tell you that Dr. Zacharias tried and I'm also going to tell you, at that point, it didn't look easy, okay? <laughs> do you know, there are some things that people do, and it just looks easy. Like, wow, that looks easy. I, I could do that. And you know, God just has this way of bringing circumstances and settings into our life that help us understand that that's not always the case. Many times, God reveals to us not only our strengths, but also our corresponding weaknesses to remind us of our dependence on Him.
It helps sober our thinking. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, talk, Paul's talking about a man that was caught up into the heavens, witnessed and heard things that are mind-blowing, things that were not even lawful for him to utter. And many people believe that Paul's speaking in the third person about himself, which I tend to believe as well. Then notice what follows. Here's what he says. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. You know, I, I hope I'm not taking too much of a stretch or too many liberties with this, but isn't it possible or doesn't, doesn't it seem to fit that we could help ourselves understand what Paul's saying is, when I'm not intoxicated with myself, there is one that I am rightly relying upon. When I see myself accurately, I begin to actually see him accurately. When I know my weaknesses, I start to see the reality of his strength. Why would God give Paul something so continually frustrating, so disheartening, even what we might call discouraging? Is it, is it not possible that it's to keep Paul from having an exaggerated, elevated, even intoxicated view of himself? Think about how obnoxious some of us would be, would be were it not for the grace of God that reveals our weaknesses that accompany our strengths. What are your weaknesses today? What are the things about yourself or your current situation that if you could change, you would? And maybe you've already asked God repeatedly to do so. Is it your fear of people, your looks, some physical infirmity? Is it a wayward child? Is it your marriage or your singleness, your weight, your athletic inability? your simple mind, your humble or meager means, and the list could go on and on. What is it that you so oftentimes find the most frustrating thing about you? And do you ever notice regarding those frustrating things about yourself that it actually has become a new avenue of dependence? a roadway that takes you to God over and over and over again. Another means of balancing what might otherwise become some mental intoxication with yourself, and now you find new avenues of dependence upon God. What the Apostle Paul is saying is he's saying, listen, okay, there are some ways to not think about yourself, but there are also some ways to think about yourself. Well, I have these weaknesses. Wonderful. What a good, gracious God who inserts weaknesses into our lives so that His strength is magnified. Each of these things that we might detail and so many more are only what we have referenced, new avenues of dependence upon God. 
Don't ever look at someone else with envy because of the greatness of their gifts. And allow me to give you two reasons why. Two reasons why we don't envy the gifts of others. First, we remember that what they have, they received. Well, so-and-so, they have so many gifts. Listen, that all that is is something that they have received. You know, I joked with him a minute ago, but what if after the service today, Dr. Zacharias said, hey, if you're wearing orange today, come see me. I have a crisp new $100 bill for all the people today wearing orange. And so, wow, man, I mean, there, there are several hundred people that are wearing orange. And it's kind of interesting. Everybody's kind of looking down right now, you know. And so they line up afterwards, and he's got a stack of, of new $100 bills, and he just starts passing them out. He is making it rain with the $100 bills. And so he's just distributing the hundreds, and wow, what a wonderful thing. Listen, when you left church today, that would be the talk of the, of the day. Can you believe? Did you see the line of people? And Dr. Zach just kept giving out $100 bills after $100 bill after $100 bill. Really, I can't believe he did that. We wouldn't be talking so much about the recipient. We would be talking about the giver. But isn't it interesting when it comes to gifts that we see another person has in church, in life, we tend to focus then on the recipient rather than on the giver of good gifts. The giver of the gift, not the recipient, should be the focus of our attention. We have to get our eyes, our gaze fixed rightly on the one who gives good things, not on the one who has received the good things. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Did you get that? Every gift comes from the Father. He is to be the recipient of our praise. Why don't we envy the gifts of others? Well, we remember that what they have, they receive. And then we also remember that the greater the gift, the greater the potential for weaknesses. Wow, man, they have so many gifts. Well, you know, they probably have a lot of avenues of dependence on God. They're so good at so many things. Boy, I, I wish I had what they had. Do, do you know, the Apostle Paul helps us understand that there was a messenger from Satan. Like Satan himself says, all right, this is what I want you to do to this guy. You see him? Here's what you're going to do. The messenger of Satan to buffet me. The word buffet, it, it connotates this, and this is not a stretch. This is what it means. It means to pummel. It means a fist to the face is what it means. That Satan himself says, all right, here's what you're going to do to Paul, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Paul had great gifts, that's true, but they came with what we might call the proverbial punch in the face. We began by asking the question, who do you think you are? And we've discovered that it depends on our way of thinking. Rightly thinking about ourselves, Not to think more highly than he ought to think, but to think accurately, soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man. 
Let's go a little bit further now and not only see a way of thinking. This is Paul's exhortation. But let's go a little bit further and see an illustration. That is a way of seeing. All right, so, so uh, he's exhorted me uh, regarding, you know, how am I supposed to be, be thinking? And then he says, let me give you an illustration. And this helps us with how is it that we see ourselves as part of something bigger than ourselves? Romans chapter 12, again, verse number four, into verse five. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. Okay, what Paul's doing is he's about to talk about the spiritual gifts. Now, we're not going to do spiritual gifts today, but we'll get there. But he's preparing the way for us to understand spiritual gifts that are given to every believer in the church. And I would submit, unless we see ourselves properly as part of the body, we're never going to enjoy the unity that should exist within the body. If I don't see myself accurately as part of this body, I am never going to enjoy what God has blessed the church with, this really sweet unity within the body. Say, well, I don't, I don't get that unity within the body. Well, let me tell you whose fault it's not. It's not the designer's fault. Sometimes, well, you know, I, I just don't get the unity of the body. Like, God built it with this beautiful unity. And the Apostle Paul said, let me show it to you. This is what it's really supposed to look like. This is how the whole thing comes together. He uses an illustration and it makes sense. He uses something that we all understand to some degree or another. And that is the human body. And we immediately understand its unity, its diversity, even somewhat of its mystery. And when the human body is functioning as it's intended, there is something wonderful that's taking place. And so it is with the body of Christ. Okay, so I've mentioned this before. Oftentimes before the service... I go back to the choir rehearsal room, and I just sing with the choir. They, they are very gracious. They have, typically, they have a little, um, the, the book that they're using, whatever they're singing, and, and I look at it, and, and I don't really, I don't know what all of it means. It's kind of like the engineering homework that the guys were doing, but, but I just, man, I get the book, and I sing with the choir. Well, today... Um, you see the, um, I don't know if you can see them or not, but there are some really large kettle drums back there. And, um, and I took, the, I took the, the, the drumsticks, and uh, the, in the choir number that they sang today, there is very little room for the kettle drums. There's not a lot of, you know, boom, boom, boom. But they're going, they're singing the song, and I took the drumsticks, and I just started to play the drums. And I mean, I'm going to town on those drums, all right? And this is this beautiful, I see the Lord. You know, I'm just going to town on the drums. And I'm waiting because they're practicing and I'm waiting for the conductor, Dr. Gonzalez, to just stop, stop, stop and turn and look. And, and that didn't happen. It was very interesting. So I'm, I mean, I'm really causing a major choral disturbance, okay? Bum, 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 bum. I'm, 
I'm, you know, beating those drums. And, um, and I did get a look, though, because I kept waiting for it. And she's up there, and she's conducting, doing this great job. And I get this look, like, here she is. She's conducting. It's like, man, okay. And, <laughs> and she gave this look. And then she saw it was me. It's like, oh. <clears throat> and then she just kept, <laughs> kept conducting. She, I mean, and she just kept going. I'm like, okay. And I, so now I try to be more disruptive. And I am going to town on these drums. And she just like, nothing's going on. You know, it's just leading. I saw, I saw Alex. Alex was there. He's playing the violin. And when he first started to hear it, Alex turns around and he looks at me like, what in the, oh. <laughs> and the choir kept singing, okay. They, they saw, they're like, ay, ay, ay. And they're singing, I see the, I don't know what I see. Okay, they're just like can't believe this is going on. And finally, because Dr. Gonzalez just kept leading the choir. She wouldn't stop. Finally, I just came up and said, okay, 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 okay. All right, stop, stop, stop. And she inserted, she says, well, somebody wanted attention today. <laughs> Ouch, I will go sit down, okay? And I said, that is exactly right. Somebody wanted attention today. Let, let me ask you, does it really work that way when, a, when an orchestra is functioning like it's supposed to function? Does, does someone in the orchestra, are they supposed to say, listen, this orchestra is, is about me. I'm a little intoxicated with myself right now. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to play a kettle drum special in church. Now, now something is entirely broken about the whole thing because some little individual part of a larger group says, I'm, I'm supposed to be the center. Now, I will say there are times when different parts of the orchestra are supposed to be highlighted. And maybe there's a time when, when the other instruments, they diminish or they, they back out altogether. And, and then one, and, and in the choir, the choir seems to function with this, this, this harmony of parts. And everyone's not singing the same part. They're not always at, always at every point singing the same words. But it all comes together and it fits. And wow, it's beautiful. What if someone in the choir says, I don't want to do that right now. I want to sing whatever. And they just start out on their own because it's really all about you. You just do whatever you want to do. Follow your own heart. You're the answer to all your needs. You are the person that gets to decide what it is that... Let me ask you, is that really how life works? Because we're, we're being fed that over and over and over again. It really is all about you. It is, I suppose, if we're intoxicated with ourselves. It is if, if we see ourselves as the beginning and end of all things, but not if we're thinking soberly. Not if we're thinking in ways that say, God, what did you create me to do? And am I filling that role in the body of Christ? What Paul's teaching us with this illustration is, is some of these things at least. Like our human bodies, the body of Christ, that is the church, has many members. So we do understand, what is he teaching us? Okay, like our human bodies, 
the, the, the body of the church, the body of Christ, it has many different members. The individual members of, a, of the body, although uniquely individual, make up a unity. Oh, there's something that's, that's uniquely individual, specific about that part of the body. And yet, that, that individual member, it makes up a unity. And then each member of the body is a member of the others. My, my left hand, although only my left hand, is also a member in particular with the right hand, although uniquely individual. And the members of the body don't all do the same work. While Paul's using this as an illustration, it's also a reality. We are not only illustratively, but in reality, the body of Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular, or members of that body individually. This one body theme is found all throughout Scripture. Notice how it's used when Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus. There is, listen to this, there is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Do you notice how many times Paul uses the word in this brief little note to the church at Ephesus? One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Seven times in this brief little sentence, he says one. Has there ever been disunity in the Trinity? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Never. Perfect unity. In Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one as a unit, one Lord. So Paul is saying, this God who is one is above all, and that's where we should be looking. He is through all. That is the power that accomplishes his will. He is in us all that are part of his body. This is the unity of the Spirit of God within us. And only by his power are we able to function as one. We asked the question at the beginning, who do you think you are? We could answer it in some extended fashion like this. I am a member of the body of Christ. I am valuable to him. I've been given my adoption papers and am a part of his family. More than that, I am an important member of his body. And as such, I have been given gifts. My gifts are to draw attention to the giver of gifts, not to me. The receiver, and they are to be used to supply the needs of his body. My greatest value is to the one who has placed me in the body. So I will work to fill my place in the body and do so with joy, thanking God for both the gift and for the avenues of dependence on him that always accompanies the gifts.